Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have author Gerald Posner. He's an investigative journalist and also the author of the book Pharma, among many others as well. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Mr. Posner. Uh, Eric, great to be with you. I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you and your listeners. Yeah, and I'm glad to have you on here because you wrote a really cool book, uh, Pharma, which we're going to talk about, and it had some huge topics that really hit with pharmacy today. Obviously, it focuses a lot on the Sacklers and the opioid crisis going on, and also kind of even dives into PBMs and drug pricing. So, you know, honestly, those are some of the biggest issues in pharmacy that we have. So it couldn't hit any more closer to home for someone like me who works in community pharmacy. And you even went really yeah. deep on the Sacklers and opioids claiming that they'd be the next pandemic. Can you kind of elaborate on this book and what made you make this claim? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what I was really trying to do was a, was a history of the American pharmaceutical industry from the manufacturer's point of view. And as you know, that's almost impossible to do. <laughs> and quickly, you know, then you're doing it from the FDA's point of view, and then you're doing it from the community pharmacist's point of view, and then you're doing it, you know, in terms of legislation. So it turns out to be, you know, a story that starts in uh, the day and age of you know what i call the wild west pre-pharmacy and pre-regulation days of early 1900s late 1800s when uh, patent drugs are, are running the market but you're right as i go through the whole process through penicillin and then the fda the 62 co laws and what happens with the fda i slowly get into the process of not only the opioid crisis later on in the 80s and 90s but the question of what happens in terms of managed care how well-intentioned laws like the HMO Act uh, passed by the federal government create the managed care and create the opening for pharmacy benefit managers once McKesson and PCS and companies like that come in. And it becomes sort of a, a book that covers as much as possible in 700 pages of how we got to where we are on drugs and drug pricing and drug availability. Yeah, and 700 pages might seem long, but as any pharmacist would tell you, that's not nearly fully comprehensive of every last little detail, but you have to right. stop at some point. Yeah, that, that's right. And you have a publisher that tells you to stop as well. <laughs> so, you know, they're going crazy. When I say 700 pages, yeah, 500 pages is the actual text, and then there are like 200 pages of source notes because one of the things that I knew, you're right, an investigative writer, and I've done 13 books on everything from political assassinations to the finances of the Vatican, but this book took five years, and not having a science background, not having myself a uh, MD or a, that life sciences uh, degree, I knew that it had to be absolutely thoroughly presented in terms of its original uh, primary citations. So if somebody questioned how did you get to that conclusion? They could look at the source note and find out that I wasn't just quoting an article that had run in another newspaper, but had gone to the underlying documents, the underlying studies, the original litigation files, and tried to pull together as accurate a history as possible. And it's it's a pretty complete book, being 500 pages plus all the source notes. So I think that's, as a pharmacist, I always appreciate that, because if I want to try and fact check it, you provide the, the fact check basically right there. I was going to say that I think that's important because one of the things that happens in this discussion is, you know, you eventually, I don't offer in the book, and we can talk about this after, I don't offer policy changes necessarily. It's I'm very good at highlighting the problem. You know, I'm the guy who says, oh, by the way, the forest is on fire. And then, uh, you know, the question is, how, how do you start to put the fire out? But I think that you often, oh, what are the remedies for the existing problem unless you, you understand the problem in depth and in detail? 
Yeah. So in all your research, obviously, you dug into this as much or more than anybody. How do you think the Sacklers are to blame in here? Are they like 100% to blame? Are they 20% to blame? Like, how much are the Sacklers to blame and like Purdue Pharma and who else is at fault with this? Yeah, I, so I have a view that Sacklers are at the, they're the poster children for you know, blame on the manufacturers and for the uh, opioid crisis. And they certainly deserve a lot of the blame in part because their drug became the most successful of all of those drugs out there, you know, wrapped with that little invisible polymer coating that gave it the extended time release from the time that it goes on the market in 96 it, it, through 2018. Last year, we had full figures that sold $35 billion in retail in terms of, of uh, sales. And although that may be a drop in the bucket for Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer and other big companies, you know, of, uh, uh, $500 billion in sales and, and 700 or 800 drugs for a one-hit wonder company like Purdue, it was their big hit, and it made the Sacklers into billionaires, and they were very aggressive at the detailed team level in terms of marketing it, and they didn't report instances in which they thought that there were over-prescribers, but I will also say there's plenty of other blame to go around, not only the other manufacturers like J&J and others, but in addition to the distributors, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, uh, Cardinal, they knew, as you know, where every pill goes. They knew when one little pharmacy in a town in Kentucky was getting more pills than five times the population of the county, and they weren't reporting it. There's the FDA with its lax enforcement. Uh, time and time again, I talk about this in the book, pushed by the DEA, who thought there was a lot of diversion. They were doing nothing. There are state legislatures and others who wouldn't put in good rules about uh, uh, refills and wouldn't make databases in Florida and others who fell down on doing it. There were the overprescribing doctors who were running pill mills, only a handful, but still they did a lot of uh, prescriptions out there. So there's plenty of blame to go around. And I think that often what happens is people just point at the sectors in Purdue and say, ah, oh, there's the opioid crisis. And it's far more complex than that. Oh, yeah, totally. And like you said, I always hate seeing this, but there are bad actors in the pharmacies or pharmacists. But at the same point, it's also really hard when you don't have a prescription drug monitoring program to really look anything up because are you going to call every freaking pharmacy or every doctor in town? And that's going to take just an ungodly amount of legwork to fill one prescription. Yeah. You got to kind of go with your gut and what you think is best. And I mean, I've, I've worked with in my state as a pharmacy tech and intern and even a pharmacist as the prescription drug monitoring program is coming out. And a few months as a pharmacist without it, uh, having access to it when I first started practicing. And once you have access to that, it's a complete game changer. I mean, you can objectively look at everything, at least within your state, now within a number of states. And we finally saw the last state, Missouri, just implemented a PDMP program that was started by, uh, the bill was started by Holly Rader. Uh, she's a Republican out there. And finally, now we have all 50 states will have a prescription drug monitoring program in place in yeah. the year 2021. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's remarkable to me if, if you had taken me back 10 years ago and said, by the way, it's going to take the 2021 to get prescription monitoring programs in place in every state. I would have said, oh, no way. It's not going to take that long. There's a momentum building for it. But it's, it is remarkable it took that, that long. One of the things is even in states in which you didn't have, let's say, that monitoring program in place, you're right. So for perspective of community pharmacy, independent pharmacists, it's impossible to know what's going on in the state. However, the big chains, CVS and Walgreens, they could tell what was going on within their own system. So they could actually take a snapshot at a nationwide level and understand where the hot points were in terms of prescribing. One of the reasons that they got in trouble over time with the federal government and had to come to agreements in which they paid big money back was that they had 
pharmacists and some of their chain operations who were running the equivalents of, you know, filling uh, prescriptions that were dodgy or were counterfeit or they weren't quite sure of or had a relationship with the local uh, pill mill doctor. And when they eventually did come to those agreements at the chain level with the, with the federal government, companies like Purdue tried to figure out ways to get them to either modify that agreement or somehow work around it. So it's a remarkable study at the chain level, not at the independent pharmacist level, of how things could have been better but weren't, unfortunately. You know what's crazy, too, is even after all those lawsuits and everything, uh, I was actually out on a parental leave, and my staff pharmacist was covering for me as, like, the fill-in pharmacy manager. She had an issue with a prescription that she was like, I can't fill this. Like, this isn't legit. I don't trust this prescriber. I don't trust this patient. Like, everything I'm seeing, like, this is super questionable. She actually still had the store manager and the district manager in there telling her she needs to fill it or get fired. And that was in uh, 2020. And I'm looking at this going, this stuff still happens. It just goes underreported. And I think more pharmacists know and know how to speak up. But there's still a lot of us that do get pressured and intimidated unless you'd really know your rights and honestly have a strong backbone. It's really hard to kind of stand up to a lot of those pressures because people are just, you know, the higher ups who aren't pharmacists really just don't care. They're only looking at it from the business side. And it's sad because right. they know about this stuff still. Like this isn't that long ago all this lawsuits and litigation happened. Yeah, no, no, no. You, you're absolutely right. And I think they forget about that. But for the higher ups, you, you see that time and time again in which a pharmacist, even one who does have the feeling that something's not quite right, might be a little bit dodgy, they speak up and then they get tremendous pressure from what I call, you know, the, the, the non-pharmaceutical uh, higher ups who say, go ahead and, and fill it. And that's unfortunately just, you know, the, the way that it slips through the process. So I get that. And, uh, you know, credit to those pharmacists who try to stand up to the system. Not everybody's able to eventually, you know, make their own individual effect because of the way the system works about them. And that's a shame. Yeah. And one key thing to remember here is when, was, for a lot of my listeners are pharmacists, you know, they'll take your license away as the pharmacist first. They're not going to take away the pharmacy's license, which is that's how the chains would really get hammered on this. If you start taking away store licenses or you have to operate one less store with the pharmacy in it, that is huge for kind of forcing their hand on letting the pharmacist kind of do what's right here. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the reasons, it's always one of the reasons that I've thought, you know, from having done this work and having spent the last five years uh, looking at this field, that I, uh, I'm a big believer. And this is not going to change things overnight. But I've always thought that pharmacists, you have, uh, here's a group of professionals who are clearly valued as community health care providers. But as you know, it's less than 40 states allow them to qualify as medical providers under, you know, Medicare Part B, uh, the, the way patients' care is given. It's time for the federal government to you know make sure that i think uh pharmacists have provider status and not that that's going to change things in terms of necessarily the politics to take place with or the threat that a pharmacist has to lose their license if they're not doing the right thing but it it, it will give them a, a little bit more medical standing sometimes to make those decisions express those opinions and have some persuasion with them you know, that's funny. The whole reason we got provider status in Ohio, it's a long story. I've covered on the podcast before, but a lot of it had to do with exactly what we're talking about with the opioid crisis is they thought we could make an impact with it because obviously Ohio is one of the hardest hit states with it. And my senator, Matt Dolan, who really pushed for and got provider status to pass unanimously in our state, that was his big thing was, look, we can use you guys to help end the opioid epidemic. And we've seen some of it. It's still progressing. Obviously, everything has to grow once it gets passed in the law. But it's one of those things that I didn't even talk, talk to you about that before coming on this podcast. And you just hit the nail on the head with it for exactly how we got it here in Ohio. So that's pretty interesting. 
that that is something you know eric i didn't know that that's why you got to know how because one of the things that i thought was really helping it move forward uh you know so there there's always a silver lining to a bad event and the bad event is COVID and the pandemic the yeah. silver lining is that some things take place so i COVID in some ways had reinvigorated i think the move for uh, the idea of uh, provider status because the COVID-19, you know, relief efforts vary so much widely across the country because the legal scopes of practice, the, you know, yeah. the SOPs varied so much so that before pharmacists could provide those services, the states had to authorize those services under its legal SOP. That was such a mess. And I thought that's going to push the federal government to immediately adopt provider status for pharmacists. But it hasn't because the bureaucracy moves so frustratingly slow at times. <laughs> you just scratch your head and wonder why. Yeah, and there's a whole level of politics in it. If you talk, start talking AMA right. and other levels who are always worried yeah, about it. Yeah, they're, that's they're true. Yeah. yeah. No, that's very true. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, no, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's not just the politicians are slow, uh, but now you have to ask yourself, okay, what are the countervailing uh, efforts? What are the people who don't necessarily like the idea of full uh, provider status for pharmacists? And yes, you have the AMA, and uh, you, you also have pharmacy benefit managers who like the fact that the PBMs like the fact that uh, pharmacists have some restrictions on them and can't necessarily fight back. They're, they're the bottom of the totem pole in terms of this drug distribution chain. They're the face to the retail customer, to the patient, to the consumer of the pharmaceuticals. They're the dispenser. But in terms of the financial uh, you know, uh, setup for the distribution line, they're at the bottom of that uh, yeah. run. And the PBMs love that, of course. Yeah, and what's kind of crazy too is you start talking about PBMs and kind of talking about opioids a little bit. Now we're seeing a major push back. So in my state, we have to have a diagnosis code on any controlled substance. There is a way to get around that, but you are supposed to have a diagnosis code. So that way the pharmacist knows. But also with PBMs, we're seeing them limit the amount of opioids, which would be good most of the time, right? Like if someone's coming from an ER, you probably shouldn't be giving them more than a seven-day supply. Like That makes sense. But we're seeing when they right. put these things on people who are chronic pain patients, that all of a sudden now they can only get seven days at a time or their doctor has to fill out another prior authorization form, which obviously takes time, energy, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess that makes sense for some of the shady practices if they have a high rate of opioid patients where it's like 90% or something. But we're seeing this even with like, you know, some of the local like health facilities, they have people yeah. who have been on, I don't know, like two Percocet a day for a while and they kind of take one or two. Sometimes they might take three. They kind of are on that low end just as needed. And they're throwing a prior authorization up on these people. Now they have to go like a no. week without their medication. No, no, it's, abs it's absolutely terrible. And, you know, this is interesting because we're talking about it here in opioids and what's happening. But it, it turns out it's almost the, the, the modern history of the, of the drug industry in the sense that, you know, you get a, a, a drug that is out, that's approved by the FDA, that has legitimate purpose, that has some beneficial effects, and then it starts to become popular because it can be abused and it gets diverted to the black market and there are some over-prescribers that happened with, uh, with diet pills in the 60s and yeah. early 70s, with diet clinics opening up everywhere. They're the equivalent of pain clinics, you know, that happened in the uh, 90s and 2000s. And then it happened with opioids later. And what happens at the end, it happened with benzos as well, uh, so that the pushback, when eventually Congress gets involved and they have public hearings and they say, okay, we've gone too far, people are getting addicted, there are people who are dying, there are people whose lives are ruined, and, and there's none worse than the opioid crisis then the pushback pushes it to the furthest extreme and patients who really need and use the medications for the proper purposes are having trouble filling the prescriptions. And at times I've talked to patients who are chronic pain sufferers who, like you said, have used 
a low level of pain, opioid painkillers for a long time. They're dependent on it, but they aren't, you know, in terms of physically addicted, it's not ruining their life and turning it upside down. They yeah. now feel like they're a criminal when they go into a pharmacy sometimes, if it's a new pharmacy, to ask for a prescription to be filled. And that's a terrible thing. Yeah, I actually had a patient who was getting a prescription sent to me electronically from Virginia. His address on the scripts of Virginia, but his ID said Ohio now, and he was a sickle cell patient. And they're right. all, they're always on a lot of, not always, but they're usually on a lot of uh, high dose pain meds. And of course it was like, you know, something like morphine 30, some crazy amount of other stuff he's taking all the time. And so I had to like do my due diligence and question it and call around and come to find out it's one of the leading sickle cell doctors in the United States. And because of COVID, he hadn't been seen in like six or seven months. I'm like, Hey, Ohio law says you have to be seen once every so often, just because if you can just go see mm-hmm. him one time during this pandemic, like, cause it's going to take a year and a half or two. And I know you have health issues. I'll consider that good just because then I know you physically did it. And so they actually sent me his report and I'm like, this is when people are on the up and up, like it's easy. Just, you know, Hey, do the minimum for me and I'll take care of you. And that's that's not what we're seeing from the abusers, obviously. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So talking about PBMs too and drug pricing here, uh, they obviously have a lot of ties together, which you covered in one chapter of your book. And in leading up to this, you said I was probably the first person to show interest in this chapter, which is probably just because I'm a pharmacist. When it comes to your research and writing pharma, who do you think is more at fault for the increasing prices? Is it the manufacturers or the PBMs or what? Well, I mean, look, one can't do without the other in some ways. PB, PBMs uh, have inserted themselves in business since the early 80s, as you know. So manufacturers could still have high prices without PBMs, there's mm-hmm. no doubt. And and there was price gouging on some dr- popular drugs before PBMs ever existed. So you take PBMs out of the equation and you could still have, uh, you know, we're the only country in the world, as you well know, that allow manufacturers unfettered pricing power so you set the price as the market will bear and sometimes that concern would be too high uh now that aside pbms are you know to me become as i I see them take place over time and as they roll out such a important part of the high cost of prices because they are really the only two essentially unregulated for the most part section of drug pricing and that's the that's the real problem they also cover me you know, if I went out on the street and stopped 10 people, even people who take uh, hypertension medication and they, they may take uh, insulin and other things, so they, they're, they're patients within the drug system, but I said, hey, what's the pharmacy benefit manager? Nine out of 10 won't know, or maybe 10 out of 10 won't know. Although, <laughs> as you know, PBM plans now cover over 250 million Americans, so about 95% of the country's uh, population. The big three, forget about it. Yeah, you know, they're United like 80% Health, or something uh, like that, like 10 or 20 million yeah, alone. Yeah. Yeah, and they're big. They're top twenty Fortune five hundred companies. They uh, people don't realize how big they are. So, you know, it's they are the ones. We don't know what their contracts are because there's no financial disclosure required by the government. So the contracts that they do with the corporations and government aid programs and HMOs, as well as the you know pharmacy chains, are sort of all in the dark. The and I think it's given the PBMs the ability to squeeze. Uh, for profits they certainly do it on spread pricing yeah um those opportunities exist and they just aren't required to report all their financial data or the amount of the rebates and uh, i think that to the extent that they have flourished and become so profitable it's often at the cost and expense of community pharmacists who have been squeezed the most uh in addition to uh, to patients who end up paying a higher price because the uh, profits being made by those pbms what made you specifically focus on PBMs? Was it just kind of you started digging and then all of a sudden they came up? Because like you said, most people don't know who they are and they're probably going to read this chapter in your book and 
It might be a little confused. It might be very eye-opening. Um, you know, like what made you really focus on PBMs? Yeah, so, you know, the, the great thing was uh, PBMs came to me organically in terms of the chronology of the drug business, meaning that, you know, once I'm doing, uh, studying to see how things happened under the Nixon administration, I see that, you know, this Health Maintenance Organization Act that gets through Congress in 73, and it's really a trial program to support the development of HMOs. That was it. Uh, okay, everybody thought, hey, that would be a good idea. Nobody could have imagined then that it would become so big because before the HMO Act, ma managed care insurers were really a negligible part of the healthcare market. Right. And there was one big one, Kaiser Permanente, and that was it out of the West Coast. And then after 73, all of a sudden, HMOs start to cover, you know, uh, you're up to 50 million Americans in no time at all. And it's so interesting to see what I call the, the birth of PBMs really is the birth of, you know, like, PCS, this pharmaceutical card system that comes in as a payroll processor, the equivalent of it, and says to the big companies like IBM and everybody else, hey, you guys have to supply all this paperwork insurance now with the HMOs, your big companies, we can do it for you. So all they're going to do is do the equivalent of data processing and save insurance companies time and paperwork. It's not until McKesson buys it, you know, and then turns it into, it has a bigger dream for it. And that dream is, hey, you don't just have to be the people push the paperwork around. We can actually have a say in what happens. And once you start to say, well, we will be responsible for the formularies, we'll do the drug work, we'll require when people have to go back and, uh, you know, it doesn't happen right away, but over time, uh, when, when you need to get prior approval, once you start to get some muscle in the role you're playing, then, of course, you, it's a natural, it's a natural industry to follow. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think that's cool because obviously as pharmacists, we're seeing it in the back end, but we're seeing a system that, like you said, was 30, 40 years, or if not more, in the making that finally led to this crazy uh, game of pricing and everything. So, Yeah, I think that's right. You're seeing you're, you're the, the grip of it. That's exactly right. And when you actually see, by the way, for whatever it's worth, how it, it starts out, so you don't see old line unintended consequences. So yeah. even companies like Medco, when they first come out, they're driving hard bargains for the best prices from pharmaceutical companies. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, you have a manufacturer set a price. Now, all of a sudden, you have a company like Medco comes in and says, no, we don't want to pay that. We think it should be paid for that. That's fantastic, except what happens is they don't pass those savings on to the consumer. That's yeah. the problem. So, yeah, they negotiate the, those cost savings, and then, you know, then manufacturers got smart and said, okay, gee, you don't like the price of our drug. Um, or you don't happen to like our drug because it's more expensive than competitors, so you're not putting on a formulary, so how about some rebates for the time being? You know, that's how you end up, uh, as you know, with sometimes drug companies giving rebates and actually put it underneath their costs, and that's how we have a Supreme Court case up there now with Graflitch. You know, I forget the 80s movie with Roddy Dangerfield, but there's one where he goes back to college, and they're trying to, like, ask about how you get something done in business. And the professor gives a very simple answer. And he's like, that's not how you do it. First, you got to grease this guy. Then you got to pay, take his wife out to dinner. <laughs> then you got to do this. And I'm like, that's what this sounds like in my head. It's like that crazy explanation. You're right. I think the PBM, uh, the early uh, founders of the PBMs must have seen that movie and taken it to heart. <laughs> yeah, it was sometime in the 80s. So maybe they did. <laughs> yeah, you're um, right. If you could cut or modify one thing to help reduce drug prices from everything you've looked at, what would it be? Yeah, you're right. There's so many uh, like <laughs> little fixes that I'd like. So I mean, I mean, I could stop spread pricing. Okay, let's say you've had spread, spread pricing. The uh, computers are very good at it now. That will give them a crimp and it might reduce the pricing, but that's not probably big enough. 
I think that what it really needs is discounts offered on prescription drugs need to be passed on to the patients to lower their out-of-pocket costs. That's the, uh, the bulk of it. And you could actually set a, uh, a minimum of what that discount has to be passed on. We could, I'll tell you, have a big effect on pricing if you just made all PBM financial data transparent because once you do that, yeah. you're going to wipe out a lot of the uh, of the rebate pricing. So, you know, things that may seem arcane, to, uh, not, to, not to you or other pharmacists, uh, but to the public, it's very hard to get public support for these things. You know, you start to talk about spread pricing or transparency on financial data for PBM um, or passing on the discounts on prescription drugs as policies. And the public gets outraged about the opioid crisis as they should because that they can understand. And they're identifiable bad figures in terms of like a, a family, the sackers and things like that that we talked about. It's much harder to get them excited or mobilized as a, uh, as a widespread to put effort on politicians to change the rules on PBMs because it's such a little known arcane part of the business and seems so obtuse and doesn't and people don't understand how it has a direct effect on them. Yeah, whenever you talk about anything that involves like budget and like kind of a budget planning for like a state or like federal government, a lot of times it's like, okay, eyes glaze over, just pass the thing, we don't care. And that's probably what happens with that is kind of what you're alluding to. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, and even when you say those are policies that maybe you could change, but, you know, if you wanted to even uh, talk about what could be changed as a law, what could Congress do in that? I mean, Iowa's uh, Senator Grassley had a a pretty good plan. You know, there was the Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act. That bill included a few things uh, like, you know, it would prohibit PBMs from recouping portions of the payments made to a pharmacy. It would require disclosure of, you know, drug discounts and DIR fees from PBMs. That would certainly help, as well as Part D and Medicare Advantage plans to audit PBM contract terms. So now you're talking about legal change that would not eliminate PBMs. It shouldn't be. It, it wouldn't put them out of business, but it's going to regulate them in a way that when they make their money, we're going to know exactly how they're making it. And some of that is going to come, you know, not be so onerous on community pharmacists and at the same time help patients a little bit. So there are ways that it could be improved, but there's just the momentum is almost there. But like you said, it took to 20 to 21 to get the, the last real uh, plan in place that would help on opioid prescriptions and that in terms of you know, a state program. So it can take a while for these things to get done. Yeah. And for listeners, I actually have reached out to Grassley's uh, office. Um, they were considering coming on. I think things got tied up with just the the mass amount of things that has to go on in that office and how important he is in the Senate. But if you do want to reach out to your uh, senator, obviously go to wherever you can to find them on the government websites and then tell them you support Grassley's bill. It is probably one of the best things I've seen as far as fixing this whole crazy system. So I think I that's agree. something that, you know, hey, if it might not be perfect. I, I don't want to comment on that part, but I do think it's very, very good. And I'll take very, very good any day over nothing. So that's just the way I look at See, it. So and so, this is interesting, Eric. When you say this, I agree with you. This is very good, and there's no there's no bill that's a you know perfect wish list. But here's here's where it becomes interesting. So, in terms of the history of the of the business, I cover pretty extensively in 1962 when they they passed these amendments in the Senate and essentially established the safety protocols and clinical trials under the FDA. That was a big effort for two years by this. Uh, Tennessee crusading Senator Estes Kofoffer had made his fame by investigating the mafia. And he had actually wanted to limit the manufacturers, uh, the, the length of the patents from 17 years down to maybe five or eight. He would require mandatory licensing at 8% after three years, all these things. 
You looked at that bill when he first had it up, and it was going to make a real impact on drug pricing. But yeah. you know what happened? The, the pharmaceutical industry came up, lobbied both sides of the aisles, and cut the hell out of it. And that's what I'm really interested in watching on Grassley's Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act. Here we have the bones of a really good law. What he has in that draft and that proposal would help a lot. So now we have to watch as investigative reporters, as pharmacists, as people inside the community, is to see how the, the very interests like PBMs and manufacturers and others get in there to lobby their favorite senators to cut the, the, the sort of the legs out of that bill. And I'm hoping that doesn't happen because what we don't want is a bill that eventually comes out that is one-tenth of what the original had been. And that's happened too many times in the drug industry history. Yeah. Well, and the one good thing, too, is Grassley's been in the Senate for a long time. He's, I think, the most senior member, if I remember correctly, which means he's worked with Joe Biden, not only in, in president. Right. He's worked with him as vice president, and he's worked with him in the Senate. And I'm really hoping, since you know Biden really likes bipartisanship, him reaching out to somebody like that, who he's worked with previously – you know, if you have Grassley and Biden both supporting it, like what else do you need? I, I don't know what to tell you. At that point, you've got you've got bipartisanship. You've got across the aisle. You've got rural. You've got city. You've got coast, Midwest. I mean, like everything, right? And just those two, that should be enough in my mind to get more than enough votes on board and get that thing through. But again, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not Chuck Schumer. <laughs> no, no, no. I agree with you. And what's interesting about it is, you know, and the one thing about the pharmaceutical industry and this primarily manufacturers, but also involves PPFs and others. Um, it become very, very adept at the manufacturer level and PBM level for, for lobbying both sides of the aisles. So it's impossible to say, by the way, they just have the Democratic Party in their uh, pocket. They just have the Republican Party in their pocket. They're able to you know, get friends on both sides of the aisle. Remember, yeah. the top 10 manufacturers in the world in terms of revenues spend more money on average in this last decade on marketing and share buybacks and lobbying than they do on research and development. So, you know, they understand the importance of keeping their stock prices high and making sure that they they have a big effect when it finally comes to Washington. They don't spend all that money for nothing, meaning that they're going to be out there, you know, arguing as hard as they can uh, for limitations of their bill. But I agree with you. If there's anybody that I trust in terms of pushing it forward with the right intent, it's Grassley. And maybe he can come to an agreement with Biden who does like to have bipartisan deals. Yeah, and you know, you had two things there. Is one is the amount they spend on advertising and lobbying. I just did a previous episode covering just Centene, not even like the drug manufacturer, what they spent on a drug lob or on mm -hmm. lobbying. And it's pretty high. And then if you look at the manufacturers, I think I didn't know it was Pfizer, and I forget the other one. I think it might have been AstraZeneca. They spend roughly fifteen percent of all their expenditures on advertising and only seven percent or eight percent at research. It's basically two to one across the board for all the major drug manufacturers, what they spend yeah, on advertising versus research. Right. And and of course, you know, and it's interesting to think that we, the United States, are only one of two countries in the world, the other being New Zealand, as you all know, that allowed direct to consumer ads. So yeah. it wasn't allowed before ninety seven, but that has provided and that goes back to you know i talk about this in terms of value which was was the number one drug in the in the world for 15 years uh, starting in 68 it actually come out in 63 it took five years to replace librium which also had been often the rest drug and and the philosophy of that that it started actually by an ad man who's one of the senior sackler family members this guy yep. Arthur sackler 
had been you create demand among consumers. So, you know, the old view had been you advertise in medical journals, you do the AMA, you do Lancet, you do everything else. You send out flyers to doctors and all of that, and you, and you highlight the drug because this is an unusual business. You need the doctors to prescribe the drug before patients can get it. You can't sell directly to them. Okay, yeah. understood. But Sackler and other pioneers in terms of changing the way that manufacturers advertise said, you know what? You should try to advertise to consumers in terms of inserts in Smithsonian magazines or National Geographic or others. This was before even DTCA, uh, direct-to-consumer ads, because you want consumers to go into their doctors and say, hey, what about that new heart pill I hear about? What yeah. about that new hypertension? Hey, I hear something about erectile dysfunction. What about this? So that, you know, when, as you know, when in 97, when the FDA gave the green light to direct to consumer ads, the thought was very few con uh, companies could really use it, but they realized it was a panacea because they were able to create a consumer demand by people going to the doctors and asking. And so doctors were getting it not only from the detail teams and all the medical ads, but in addition from the consumers coming in and asking for it. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy to me. And I've, I highlighted this in one of my very first episodes on the podcast like two years ago. But the senior Sackler, obviously, his whole family is with OxyContin, Purdue Pharma. But he actually helped advertise. I think it was was it Valium. I forget the exact one off the top of my head. Right. And that combination of a benzo to opioid is like the number one abuse combo in the United States. If not, it's up there. In the United States. Yeah. yeah. And so he was actually brought in by Hoffman University to Librium first. So he had this That's right. multi-million dollar launch. He makes Librium the number one drug in the country. And then Valium replaces it by the same research team. But what's interesting is that that sector had proved his medal in the late 50s with Pfizer. So that Pfizer had been looking for a broad spectrum antibiotic because the money was in the 50s. Yet there was Milltown as a mild tranquilizer. There wasn't much. Librium doesn't come out to 1960. But the, the big money in the 50s for the manufacturers were in antibiotics. And yeah. they were all looking for their own patented, uh, you know, from streptomycin on. They were looking for their own patented broad spectrum. So Letterlay comes out with this drug called Aramycin, which is their brand. And Pfizer, who's looking for their brand, finally comes up with a knockoff of Aramycin. It's one molecule of difference. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. That's to, they, they brand it as Teramycin. And it has no therapeutic difference in terms of the way the drug goes out, nothing in terms of the way it's administered to that. They go up before the FDA. They end up going to court. They get a patent on it. And Arthur Sackler says to the head of Pfizer, this guy, Jack McKean, if you give me $10 million, I'll make your drug the number one selling antibiotic in the country. Now, how do you take a drug that's a B2 drug and do that? And most companies were skeptical of Sackler's claims, but McKean went along with it. And it's Sackler who comes up with the idea of, the detail team at that time, all men. He's the one who comes up with the idea of, you know, pharmaceutical swag, as I call it, gifts <laughs> for uh, uh, doctors. Uh, the Speaker's Bureau, let's put doctors who are high prescribers on the Speaker's Bureau, send them around the country and pay them some money. Uh, he's the one that's doing four color ads and everything else inside Lancet and Journal Medi American Medical Association at a time when they were doing black and white copies of the inserts from drug uh, things. And that $10 million that was spent revolutionized the ad business. Teramycin became the number one selling drug in America for nearly a two-year period, the top selling antibiotic. And um, everybody started to copy that hard sell for Vanison Avenue. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy that like, not even just opioids, but like what that old Elda Sackler did completely was way ahead of his time for everything in medicine and drug advertising and just beyond crazy. He's almost like that evil genius in the room. We're like, that's really smart. That was used wrong <laughs> when you look at it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's like diabolically clever genius in terms of marketing. And it does revolutionize the business. And there's even a time in 62 when he's called before the Senate and grilled about the fact that some of the ads he's running for core drugs is a drug that's supposed to um, clear up these bacterial infections. And they have they run two pictures of a patient lungs to show before and after. It turns out that not only are they different patients, but that they weren't even taking the drug. They, <laughs> and when called before the Senate, he said, well, I, the ad doesn't say, it just uses those as illustrative you know, <laughs> examples of what could be done. So this is a time before you know, drug companies really had to provide every detail about every possible side effect, but also a sidelight that you and other pharmacists are well aware of. And sort of the most comical part is Americans are now accustomed in the day and age of direct consumer ads of listening to an ad on TV and it runs on. And then, of course, somebody at the end tells you about all the possible side effects, except, of course, the loophole in the law is if the manufacturer doesn't tell you what the drug is for. They don't have to tell you about the side effects. And the the first of the ads that were most successful were like for the little purple pill. Um, Claritin was the first big ad ever run for to consumers. And I remember seeing it, uh, you know, when I was still a teenager, there was these uh, people running across a field, you know, filled with flowers and that. Um, I thought it was like an antidepressant (laughs) because it looked like they were happy. It turned out it was, you know, for allergies. I get it. But, you know, if you don't tell them what it's for, you just can run the ad on its own. As strange as that may be, it can sometimes work. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's that's pretty funny. I remember those ads, too. I'm only 36. But, yeah, I remember all those. Those ads, the Viagra ads, where he's riding a motorcycle, all those different things. And right, it's just, right. It's so right. funny how they do yeah. that. And, uh, of course, it, it is human nature because people will go in and say, and look it up and say, what is that drug? And yeah. they will ask their doctor about it. So if the, the ad is good, it can create the demand, even though you aren't telling people what it's to, to be taken for. Yeah, no, it's it's nuts how the advertising works and how much money it makes at the same time. Hey, before we wrap up here, um, I want to get two questions I ask everyone on the podcast. And you being an investigative journalist are probably going to have very different answers. So um, if you could change one thing in pharmacy that isn't a law, what would it be and why? I think the one thing I would change in pharmacy right now is I would make sure that pharmacists get provider status across the board. It's hard to say it's the, is it the most important thing, but I think it's critical the public health. Um, and, uh, I think that is something that is overdue. Wow. That was not what I was expecting, but I, I support <laughs> that and appreciate it. <laughs> All right. If you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, or even add a law, what would it be and why? Uh, okay. So this will seem probably, I've spent too much time in the field to come up with this as my law, but I would <laughs> prohibit PBMs from recouping any portions of the payments made to a pharmacy. And at the same time, require disclosure of the drug discounts, the IR fees. Yeah. So yeah, that's what, that's what I would do. Yeah, I think that's a good one. We've even seen recently where they are trying to charge pharmacies like per each transaction, and they've increased that price. So whether you submit a claim and it goes through or not, you're being charged like twenty five or twenty eight cents. And sometimes you got to submit a claim five, ten times, and then you're talking a couple bucks right there off the top. So their their games just keep shifting. It's so crazy. But I think that's, anything that's, to bring to light is good. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you something. And the reason when you ask me those things, I think people sometimes expect that since I'm coming to this as a journalist and a, people are looking for a, a bigger fix. They're looking for some, for me to be able to say, and not you, but you know, yeah. sometimes on another interview that we're they're not medical professionals, they're looking for me to say, oh, price control or <laughs> yeah. blah, 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 or something that says there's the magic bullet and everybody's missing it. And if we did this, it would fix the business. And there's no such thing. 
it's incremental fixes and you have to pursue them one after the other. And if we got those sort of things on my wish list, then there'd be a series of others to go ahead. But I think that uh, the industry and pharmaceutical, from manufacturing to pharmacies, the, the, the distribution process, the pricing is so complex in many ways that the fixes are, you know, one by one. There is no single overall fix. Nobody has a plan that says this is it. And if anybody says they do, they're either naive or they're, they're wrong. I can tell you're not a politician because that's not the answer people want to hear, but that is 100% the right answer. <laughs> that's right. You're right. I'm not a politician because politicians always say they have to fix this through. But, uh, but in practicality, you know, I, I just think that uh, that's one of the things I think you, you have to not lower – I mean, I never lower my expectation because my expectation is that we can eventually get to the right side on these issues, but it, I do not uh, at all – mislead myself into thinking that it's going to be simple yeah no that's 100 percent a good idea and I'm, I'm of the same ilk so um where can people find your book by the way because i want to make sure we plug this because i think this conversation just shows how well you understand everything from your investigations well thanks uh, the it should be available everywhere uh, where books are sold in bookstores so to the extent that bookstores are still around where people are living and if not online uh, from uh, every is sort of from Amazon to iBooks to Barnes and Noble to everywhere else. It, it's in audiobooks, it's in Kindle, and it's in uh, paper and either paperback or hardcover. Yeah. So, listeners, again, the book is called Pharma, P H A R M A, Gerald Posner, P O S N E R. That way you can find them anywhere. I plan on listening to this. I haven't fully listened to it yet, but I got some insiders who got me this set up with this interview because they really loved it. So, thanks again for coming on the podcast, Gerald. Thanks so much. It was really fantastic. I very seldom get to talk to, to pharmacists or community pharmacists or that. And, and uh, having spent a lot of time on it, uh, it's a real treat to be on uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thank you. And listeners, if you can share this episode or give it five stars, I'd appreciate it because I think this is a great example of a conversation that we can have as pharmacists with somebody who isn't a pharmacist who also understands it and can help us kind of relay our message to the lay people. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.